We're brought here today by the love that Sarah and David share for each other. We're going to be so happy. We'll be so happy. I'm going to crush it at being a husband. Happy anniversary, babe. Great idea coming here. It's been an amazing year. It sure has. <laughs> Wait, you do gifts on your anniversary? Why did nobody tell me this? Didn't he forget my gift? Quick, say something. I also ordered you a gift. It has not gotten here yet. <laughs> I have a feeling I know what it is. I mean, I've been hinting pretty heavily. Absolutely no idea. So, um, there's been something I've been wanting to talk to you about. Uh-oh. She caught me using the decorative soaps again. Have you, uh, thought about us having a baby? Kids, we just got married. Are you serious? I can't create a human. Yep, he's totally freaking out right now. Ah, crying, mess, noise, poop, lots of poop. Honey. Yes. <laughs> what? Um, I'm ready to think about ha having the... Why don't you open your gift? Okay. <laughs> what? We made a baby. You're pregnant. Yeah, I'm so pregnant. Oh, like how much? Like a hundred percent. Like all the way pregnant. Ah! <laughs> it's gonna be a boy. He's gonna be awesome. He's gonna play football. It's gonna be a girl. She's gonna be my best friend. I'm gonna teach him how to build stuff. She's gonna do ballet. Throw stuff. Shopping. Break stuff. Theater. Burn stuff. Mommy's little princess. He's gonna be my little buddy. We're having a baby. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. We're gonna crush parenting. I'm gonna crush it at being a dad. Cheers. <laughs> um, yeah, this is gonna need to be decaf. Is that a is that a pregnant thing? <laughs> We're gonna miss that couple, aren't we? Uh, we've been with them for four weeks now. I'm kind of sad to leave them. Hi, it's uh, week four of our series called uh, What Happy Couples Know. My name is Scott. I'm lead pastor here at First Christian. We are really glad you're here with us this morning. Um, if you need a Bible or you need the program for today, bulletin, um, some space for taking sermon notes, as well as questions uh, for how to practically apply the sermons, uh, or if you're in your life group for your life groups, those are coming down the aisles there. Guest services folks have those. Just put up your hand and uh, they'll get you hooked up with what you need there. Um, we're in week four, as I mentioned, of what happy couples know. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles um, to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to hang out in the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, if you need a Bible, uh, those are coming down the aisles there. Just slip up your hands. If you don't have a Bible, want a Bible, uh, you want to need an extra Bible, grab it, take it. It's yours. Put your name in it. I want to let you know what's coming up in the next few uh, sermon series that we're going to be um, covering here, basically to take us up through um, up, up to Christmas through no, uh, November. Next week, we're doing a standalone sermon, um, and it's basically titled <laughs> something to the effect of multi-site church, what and why. Uh, what is a multi-site church, and why are we becoming one? Uh, we're going to cover that next week. And we're going to establish from the book of Acts um, that multi-site's not something really we're, we're making up. Um, yes, we have some space problems. We have some good growth issues we need to continue to uh, account for and build capacity for. Um, but, but, but this isn't something we're just making up. Um, we're going to talk about a, a biblical or theological case for uh, this crazy thing we're doing uh, called a multi-site church. It'll help you understand the sort of total reset 
um, that we're going through as we go from one church in one location to a church in uh, multiple locations. Um, We're going to go from one to 12 overnight. No. A few of you are all like, what? (laughs) One to two is the plan. Um, After that, we have a cool four-week series called Reachable. Um, We're just going to be doing that for four weeks. And um, we're going to be studying how God's plan and power in the New Testament, especially with the early church, make those who seem unreachable, reachable. We're going to be doing that for four weeks. And uh, if you're going to see a theme throughout this whole fall, it's we're moving toward becoming a church in multiple locations. So after reachable, we're going to be doing um, an eight-week series called Gospel Fluency in October and November. It's a really powerful and a really helpful study in us understanding the gospel well, um, the good news in its basic terms, um, so that we can be clear about that, so that we can uh, sort of have it in our bones, and and it would be something that's a part of us in a way that we can speak well uh, and live well in a way that's winsome in a way that's attractive, um, so it can be fluent in our lives, not just by what we say, but by how we live. So this is going to be two months of all church training in evangelism uh, as part of this total reset that we're going through uh, to become um, a site here and a site elsewhere that we'll tell you about soon enough. Speaking of uh, vision for who we are and what we're becoming, um, our vision is stated as helping people find and follow Jesus. That's how we say that. And that helping people find and follow Jesus' vision uh, has a strategy that we call the seven habits. Those seven habits are our strategy as a church for your personal and for our corporate growth. And those habits are for us daily rhythms. They're daily rhythms that shape you, that shape us into the people that God created us to be. And the third one of those habits is connect in a small group. Um, Our our keystone small groups are called life groups, and life groups are sermon-based groups of 12 to 15 that meet on every day of the week. There are two or three, even four on some days of the week. Uh, They preferably meet in homes and around food. Everybody likes food, um, and it's something around which to gather. Um, So these life groups incorporate three must-have elements, relationships, the Word of God, and prayer. And so that's what life groups do when they meet together for 90-ish, sometimes two hours uh, in in a week, 90 minutes to two hours in a week. And life groups are important because what we like to say around here (laughs) is that you don't just stumble into great Christian community. Uh, You don't just discover it, you create it with others in relationship. Um, And and so we want to encourage you to take a step uh, of getting into a life group because it's the beginning of a new semester of life groups right now. And we've got a number of spots in existing groups, and we have a brand new group that has just been forming the last few days. Um, So there are spots for you if you're not yet in a life group. They're important because they are where you connect relationally beyond Sunday morning. And so we have groups that have just begun to form. So if you haven't yet connected, find somebody in the hub afterwards, out those uh, doors out that way. Uh, See Chris Oaks, our life groups director. Somebody with a name tag or lanyard on can help you out. All right, last chance for you to sign up for re-engage um, is today and tomorrow. Re-engage is an 18-week marriage enrichment program for anybody who's been married more than four years. It's for marriages in any condition, whether your marriage is amazing and awesome or your marriage is 
less than amazing and working toward awesome. Uh, Re-Engage takes place right here in this room on Mondays, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Coffee, childcare, and Xanax are provided. Just kidding about the anxiety meds part, um, obviously. Um, There are still a few spots left, so please do not hesitate uh, to jump on the opportunity uh, to be a part of this important uh, marriage enrichment ministry. I want you to jump on this because there are just a few spots left today and tomorrow. Please do not hesitate and do the nice southern thing of assuming someone else needs those spots more than you do. Um, Some of you need that spot. (laughs) So, so be real with yourself. Your marriage might need that spot. Your spouse is begging you to take that spot. So don't do the nice southern thing of waving the driver across the intersection when you've got the green light. You know what I'm talking about? Makes me crazy, y'all. <laughs> Your light just turned green and you wave somebody else to go. That's illegal. So, uh, so press, press on the gas pedal. And go back to the hub and grab one of those remaining spots and uh, do away with that treacherous southern nice thing. Um, We want to also make you aware that uh, we still need some folks to uh, take care of the chains um, with Tommy at Chucky Doak High School football games, at the home games. Those are the guys on the, and and gals, I mean, too, um, who stand on the side with the chains so that they know where the ball goes, that kind of thing. If you need training, we'll train you. So they need help with that at Chucky Doak High School, and we've been asked to help um, put some volunteers in, in that, those positions. Um, it's not paid, but you do get to experience the joy of helping make high school football happen. Um, lastly, we've been covering this for a number of weeks, and we're just going to do it real briefly today. We have space problems, good problems. I uh, want you to help us with those. So if you want to visit this link in um, now or later, um, it will tell you about the kinds of things that we need help with, which is arrive early front and center, uh, come to first service, not second. Good job, y'all. Um, and, and go downstairs if you're coming to second because we have an overflow space um, because we need to continue to create uh, capacity for guests. So just go to that URL it, uh, website. How about that? Go to that website. if you. Yeah. Stick to the script, Scott. We have a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. We're going to read that together, and then we're going to pray, get our hearts and minds in a place to hear from God. I'm reading from uh, the NIV today, which is different than normal for me, so um, we'll have the New International Version on screen here uh, so you can follow along says this, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Let's pray, friends. Father in heaven, we come to you in the quiet of this moment, submitting ourselves again this morning to the truth that you are the God who created us and made us after your image so that we could have relationship with you in eternity. And so we want to continue to shape our minds and hearts, our marriages, our relationships, our families, this this congregation after the truth that you are sovereign and that you deserve all praise and that you've given us what we call our own uh, for the sake of enjoying this process of becoming who you created us to be so that, so that we could be uh, a witness to those who need to have relationship with you, so that we could enjoy the contentment and peace of a relationship in our marriages and in our homes uh, that are about giving glory to you so that others would see our relationships and they would be drawn to you. Lord, we ask in this series that you continue to give us a vision uh, for that. We ask that as we submit ourselves again today to the authority of your word in our lives, that you would use us and that we would find joy and that you would bring together broken relationships and and, and struggling and frustrated marriages. and You would get them back on track with you as the center, Lord. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, so far in this series, um, we've been looking at three things that happy couples know. And the first thing is that we bring our hopes, dreams, and desires to the relationship, really to any relationship, but especially uh, to marriage, all of our hopes, dreams, and desires. That's a normal thing. That's a natural thing that we do in relationships. It's also natural and normal that those relatively innocent hopes, dreams, and desires turn into expectations. And when that happens, sometimes unwittingly, most of the time without us being aware, when, when those hopes, dreams, and desires turn into expectations in any relationship, but most pointedly in marriage, uh, the relationship and the people in the relationship begin to carry a weight and a burden that they cannot bear. So the first thing we said is that happy couples know that there's a sense in which they owe the other everything <laughs> while they understand they are owed nothing. It seems counterintuitive, um, but that's what the love of Jesus is like. We owe our spouse everything, but I am owed nothing in return. That's what looks like the love of Jesus. The second thing happy couples know that we said is that marriage requires a mutual submission, a mutual sacrifice that looks like the sacrifice of Jesus for us, that puts the other person in the relationship first. Uh, There's a sense in which marriage is a, a sort of submission competition, a race to the back of the finish line. And the third thing we said last week that happiest couple, happy couples know um, is that you have to throw things sometimes. 
And before you think we're talking about like dishes and silverware, uh, we're talking about throwing, uh, casting, as the Bible says in a few places that we looked at last week, casting all your anxieties on the Lord, casting them on God because he cares for you, casting all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you as a way of ensuring that we do not manipulate our spouse into a functional Messiah that he or she could never be. So today we look at the fourth thing that happy couples know. (laughs) And the fourth thing that they know is that there's a deliberate choice that they make that makes all the difference in a marriage relationship. This really applies to all relationships, but it's a keystone habit in marriage relationships. And you see, if this is something that we will do, if we will make this conscious choice, this decision in our relationships, and especially in marriage, it could absolutely revolutionize not only your marriage, but any of your relationships. There's a principle here we'll look at today that is really, really important uh, for um, godly marriage and relationships that have Christ as the center. So if you haven't turned there yet with me, uh, look at 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to jump in at verse 1 here. Um, if you're not familiar with Bible stuff, 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, there are two parts to the Bible, Old and New Testaments. And 1 Corinthians is a letter from the Apostle Paul. Um, he, he planted the, one of the first missionaries to the non-Jewish, uh, the Gentile Christians in this city called Corinth. And he writes them this letter uh, because a bunch of things were going on in the church um, there that were an unruly mess. Things had become uh, an unruly mess and they were divided because primarily, as we'll see here, they lacked love. They lacked love as the motivation and the action for their behavior with one another. And so what he says here about love, especially when applied to marriage, can revolutionize your relationship with your spouse just like it revolutionized the church there at Corinth. This is called the love chapter. Many of you may be familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, you probably, half of you probably had it read at your weddings. Um, and, and so you're probably familiar, familiar with some of the phrases in here. But it's got a weird phrase toward the end in 6 and 7 here. A couple weird phrases that you've probably not really understood well or maybe misread um, that, that is super helpful as we work through this today. So jump in at verse 1 where Paul says this. If I speak, if I were to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, like even if I could speak any language, he says, but I have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now press pause, a few things to set the tone here. A couple things to keep in mind that are some background to this verse that are helpful for us. Um, Number one, when Paul refers to tongues here in verse one, He's referring to the supernatural ability given by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel in a language the speaker doesn't know. And that speaking in tongues was part of establishing the early church. But this gift was not being used correctly among the Christians at Corinth. So that's why Paul writes here to correct that error. Second thing to keep in mind is background here for this verse. In the pagan religions of the day, 
the non-Christian pagan religions, non-Christian, non-Jewish religions, there was this belief uh, that the heavenly beings, the pagan gods and the the angels, uh, the intermediaries for the small g gods and the pagan religions, they spoke in this sort of lofty language. Um, It was called a sort of sublime oratory. And, And so the pagans would verbalize these sort of ecstatic utterances that sounded like a gibberish language as a way for them to try to speak the language of the gods or the angels. So with those two things in mind, the spiritual gift of tongues and the pagan gibberish, which are different things, Paul warns the Corinthian church here not to misuse their spiritual gift. He says, if you've got the gift of tongues, great. (laughs) But if you use it without love, if you use it without love, then you are no better than the pagans who used symbols and gongs in their ceremonies when they were speaking gibberish to their pagan gods. Paul is saying that if you don't use your gifts in love, your gifts become white noise. You got love or you got nothing. Same idea in verse 2, carries through here. Either you have love or you've got nothing. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, which here prefer, uh, pr- refers primarily to the uh, gift of preaching, communicating the truths of God's word, and not primarily to like telling the future, um, though it includes both of those sometimes. He says, if I can preach, Paul says, and I can fathom, verse 2, all mysteries and all knowledge, if I know everything, if I'm the smartest person in the room and on the planet, And if I have faith that can move mountains, notice he says, and with all of those, he's like loading these up. I can have the gift of prophecy, fathom all ministries and all knowledge. And I have faith that can move mountains. And he says, but if I have not love, he says, I am nothing. Even, even if I could explain all the mysteries of the universe, I know every last thing about the Bible and I can communicate with the best of them on the planet. And I have perfect, complete faith that can do everything. Amazing things. If I don't have love, it means nothing, Paul says. Which means, listen closely, friends. Knowing a lot does not mean being deep and spiritually mature. There's this Christian culture that that glorifies knowing lots of things about the Bible and assumes that the person must be very deep and learned and complicated and especially spiritual and especially Christian. The devil knows more scripture than any human being who's ever lived apart from Jesus. So knowing stuff does not automatically translate into behaving with love. So if it's not motivated and accompanied by love, your gifts, your resources, your amazingness... (laughs) doesn't mean it's going to accomplish the goal God sets out for it. So giftedness and speaking well and knowing things and mountain-moving faith is not the measure. Love is the measure. If you want to know if I'm the real deal, you can't judge that from this 30-minute sermon. You ask my wife, you ask my kids, you ask those with whom I work, and I live closely. Love is the measure. That's the thing, Paul says, not the giftedness itself. It's a gift plus love that God uses. So he says this. He keeps on in this vein of if you do have this but not love, then you're nothing. He says this, verse 3. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and I surrender my body to the flames, which I realize sounds like a crazy thing to say, meaning if everything I have is given away to the poor and everything down to the ashes of my body is sacrificed for others, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. I'm back at square one. So in verses one to three here, Paul is saying, in essence, you've got to have love. All these other things are good. Spiritual gifts, knowledge, faith, personal sacrifice. All of that's great. But if you have not love, then you have nothing. Which means he's saying you've got to have love. Now, if we did a quick survey and I asked you how many of you have love, everybody would be like, yeah, I have love. Yeah, I have love. Which makes it sound like it's some sort of internal, warm, fuzzy, emotional thing, uh, a feeling we possess. Uh, But we're not quite sure how to describe it beyond that. Uh, That's what most of our world would say about love. And we run the risk sometimes of defining it as an internal motivation of the heart only, uh, which actually limits what Paul wants to say here. That's what most of our world thinks today about love, as if it's some emotional, internal feeling like, I don't know what it is, but I know I have it in my heart. Paul says that's not godly love extended in action. Paul says it's much more than that. And he begins to describe that in verses 4 to 7 in ways that we're going to see apply to our relationships, especially in marriage. Paul says it's much more than an internal thing. You don't just have to have it on the inside. You have to have it on the outside in practice. And here's the distinction. You have to have love in a way that behaves like the love of Jesus for others, for us. Love is something you do for the sake of others. Love is always something that is extended for the sake of others in ways that fits with the grace and mercy of God for us. It's not building up self. Love is about building up others. Just look, verses 4 and following. He says, love is patient. This is about waiting for others. (laughs) Love steps to the back of the line. To say love is patient is to say that love recognizes that right timing plays an important part in creating an environment that accounts for the welfare of your spouse. He says love is kind. It defers to another. It responds with grace and mercy. It recognizes that everyone is carrying a heavy load and it speaks accordingly with others. He says it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. (laughs) When someone else is getting the attention uh, or telling the joke or getting the spotlight, uh, we don't have to jump in and, and rob them of their moment so that we can have ours. We're okay with making somebody else the hero without having to be so ourselves. That's what love looks like, Paul says. He says it's not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It's not 
rude or selfish or trigger happy. It doesn't count wrongs against us. It looks past slights. So that we keep our account with our spouse at zero. In fact, in the positive, as we'll see. And that's where we begin to get into this phrase. It's sometimes kind of misread, misunderstood often, I think. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says something that we're going to look at a couple times today. He says, love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, everything so far that we've read makes sense, sounds agreeable, uh, even if what we've read so far up through the first five verses might be hard to do. But then Paul throws us a bit of a curveball here in 6 and 7. Like, what does it mean to say that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth? And in what context does that apply? We'll come back to that later. And then there's this sort of rapid-fire list of four things that he says. He says, love always protects, this is verse 7, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I mean, I understand always protecting, always hoping, always persevering. I can make some sense of that. But that third one there, (laughs) always trusts, think about that for a second. It sounds unwise, frankly. Always trusts. For anybody who's experienced any of the brokenness of the world, any personal pains and hurts might, might trigger on the inside as kind of reckless and a little bit unwise relationally. In fact, there's another translation. Many of your Bibles might say, uh, love believes all things. Who always believes? No one, right? Like, who believes everything about another as reported to them? What does it even mean to say love always trusts or love always believes or believes all things? Turns out this is the keystone habit that happy couples know, the fourth thing we're going to look at in this series. And we're going to illustrate it this way today. In every relationship, and this isn't just for marriage Uh, or romantic relationships. Uh, This applies to all relationships in life. Single, dating, married, co-workers, family, kids, all relationships. In all relationships, there is a gap between expectations. There's a gap between what we expect someone to do. Yeah, I'll be there at six. Or yes, I'll have the kids or I'll have this ready, or I'll tell him this, or she'll tell him that, or I'll do this. There's a gap between expectations and what we experience. This happens in everyday relationships. It happens in all relationships. And every single time there is a gap, we make a choice for what goes in the middle. In fact, most of the time we don't even realize that we're making a choice because it feels to us like a response, a reaction. But every time that there is a gap between our expectations and experience, every time something doesn't line up, we choose what we put in the middle. 
And we either choose to believe the best. (laughs) I don't know why she didn't. I don't know why they didn't follow through. I don't know why he's late again. But I'm sure there's a good explanation. And when I get all the information, I'm sure it'll make sense. And I'm going to fill in the gaps in my understanding by believing the best. And either we choose to believe the best (laughs) or we assume the worst. Here we go again. She did it again. He did it again. They didn't follow through again. That's how it always is. Wouldn't you know it again? Typical as always. And on and on and on. And what happy couples know is that they must choose. It must become a habit to believe the best. This is what always trust or believes all things means. It means to make the choice to trust. It means that trust must be what fills the gap in our understanding in our relationships. This is a foundational, habitual behavior that takes places that takes place in happy marriages, always believing the best, always trusting. And Paul's admonition here about always trust, always believe is actually backed by uh, science. Marcus Buckingham is a business consultant. He wrote a book uh, called The One Thing You Need to Know, where he cites a 20-year study of happy couples from all over the world. These couples had been together for decades. They had marriages that had stood the test of time. They reported as having happy, uh, content, uh, joy-filled marriages. And in this study, they looked for the common denominator with all these marriages across 20 years all over the world. And what they found was startling. Those who conducted the study uh, made the assumption at the beginning, their hypothesis was, their hypothesis was uh, that those happy couples were happy because they downgraded their, their expectations. They had assumed that these couples had assumed the worst. They were happy because they downgraded their expectations in the relationship because what often happens, what most of the time happens, the natural tendency for us in relationships is to fill the gap with distrust and disappointment. Turns out he's not as wonderful as I thought. She's not who I thought she was. So I'm going to lower my expectations and have a more realistic view so that we can stay together. And what they found was exactly the opposite. These happy couples consistently rated the other person in the relationship more positively in almost every single category and quality than they rated themselves. Here's the crazy part. (laughs) These husbands and wives had an unrealistically positive view of their spouse unrealistically positive view of their spouse. Turn out love is, in fact, blind. (laughs) They found uh, what they called an upward spiral of love, which I grant sounds weird, (laughs) Uh, but it's basically like this. The decision to believe the best uh, creates what they called an upward spiral of intimacy and security and trust. The more you believe the best, 
The more intimacy, the more security, the more trust in the relationship. And then the more you believe the best, the more intimacy and security and trust in the relationship. So what they said at the end of their study was a recommendation that we should try to find the most generous explanation and believe it. That's what it means to always trust. Always believe. Find the most generous explanation. Now, I'm not dumb. (laughs) Obviously, this is not easy. It is not easy to believe the best. It may feel unrealistic. This is difficult. I've been in ministry almost 25 years, married a little more than 20, and I understand that there are limits to trust. When there is abuse, perhaps, that warrants assuming something other than the best. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about normal, everyday gaps between expectations and experience. And what Paul is suggesting here in 1 Corinthians 13, 6 and 7, is that every single time there's a gap, even if it's the same one over and over and over, what you place here is what you decide to place here. What you place here is what you will decide to place here. And you'll either believe the best or you will assume the worst. Now, there are two obstacles to believing the best, to finding the most generous explanation. And they are these. We'll put them on screen. Number one, what we experience. And number two, who we are. What we experience. Yeah, but he was late again. She didn't follow through again. One obvious uh, obstacle here is what we experience. And we sort of talked about that quite a bit. But the other one I don't want us to miss is the second one, who we are. What we bring to the relationship is far more a factor than most of us account for. (laughs) In fact, most of us are pretty good at deceiving ourselves about the number two parts of the relationship when it comes to us. What we bring to the relationship is a much greater factor than we account for. And this is often the stuff, in fact, that precedes the immediate context of the relationship. It's what we experience with others before what we experience now in this relationship, often in marriage. We show up to marriage with all of our junk and our hurt and our pain and our brokenness and our father wounds and our mother wounds, our sibling wounds, our coworker wounds, our boss wounds, our grandparent wounds, and our boyfriend and girlfriend who turns out cheated on us way back when, and we were one of three or 13. We bring all that stuff and all that baggage and all our insecurities to the relationship, and it over time becomes who we are as the filter by which we fill in the gap. (laughs) And so we have a hard time trusting, and we become suspicious, and we are always off balance, and we struggle with intimacy. And what happens is we begin looking always at number one there. Always at number one. Which means we end up always assuming the worst. And if we're not careful, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when this is the case for you, you will always find something. 
You know this is true. We all have some of this, even the best among us. We can always find something that deserves our distrust. Actually, we're pretty good at finding reasons to assume the worst. You can even do this so much in a relationship, and especially in marriage, where you create an environment of suspicion and the other person's always walking on eggshells in a way that sets the stage for even more reasons in your mind that the other person deserves your distrust. This is the opposite of a generous explanation and upward spiral of believing the best that becomes a downward spiral of distrust. And it's a form of idolizing others to be a functional Messiah they can't be. So how do we, how do we prevent this? <laughs> we always trust. We believe all things. We decide to find the most generous explanation. Look, at me, look with me again at 1 Corinthians 13. Just the last two verses there in uh, 6 and 7. Turns out Paul knew all this, <laughs> and we're just unpacking and applying it. Paul knew about the distrust gap, and he is trying to give us here in verses 6 and 7, these two verses, a powerful principle that if you will make a keystone habit in your marriage and your relationships can make a huge difference. Look again with me at verses 6 and 7 there. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. This means that love, love isn't constantly trying to catch your spouse in doing something wrong. Love doesn't delight in finding evil in the other person. Love does not delight in, in, in being keenly aware of that other person's problems, <laughs> the wrong things in them. But love finds pleasure. Love rejoices in finding what is good and godly and right and true in your spouse. If you, if you loved your spouse like that, it would change things, y'all. Love isn't constantly trying to, to jump in and build a case against the other person so you can machine gun them with their faults. Love finds joy in the things about your spouse that are good and right and godly and true. And it starts there and it fills in the gaps with that. Instead of rejoicing with evil, it rejoices with the truth. It always, verse 7, it always protects. Meaning love protects the other person from your own distrust. Y'all. Love protects the other person from your own distrust. From your own stuff. Your own baggage. Do I protect my spouse from my own baggage? It always protects. It always trusts. Always believes. Finds a generous explanation. It always hopes, meaning it always trends positively. And it always perseveres. Even 
even when there's doubt, suspicion, even when there's evidence that resists believing the best. You say, I will not create an environment in this relationship and in this home that sets up everybody else to fail and to fall into the trap of my expectations. That is what happy couples know. That it is a choice to believe the best. So try it yourself. Try it for a day. (laughs) Uh, Try it for a week. Of course, I'm calling us through Paul to try it for a lifetime. But it may be new. So it may take some practice. Decide. Make a choice. Even if you are quite good at coming up with reasons to the contrary, even if there are reasons to the contrary, decide to believe the best. Make the choice to find the most generous explanation and extend the grace of God that you don't deserve to someone else who also doesn't deserve it. This is what happy couples know. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we ask for more of your grace, more of your mercy, more of your love that extends what is undeserved to others in ways that we try to demand it from them. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his model, his selfless, sacrificial, uh, submit to our needs even as He deserved all glory. Model in Jesus. Father, teach us from this so that uh, our relationships would look like your love, that we would protect one another, that we would always trust, that we would find the generous explanation, that we would fill the gaps um, with your love instead of our own suspicion and our own need to manipulate others after our image. Father, help us to love in ways um, that take into account the fact that you're a God who made us in your image. Teach us, we pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.